Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Welcome, everyone. So glad to have you with us for this episode of Moving the Needle. Today, we explore the role of the instructional designer in higher education. It is such a jargony sounding title. And my guests today talk about what that term means to them, how they got started in this line of work, and what they love about working on courses with the faculty members they support. Let me introduce you to them now. Dr. Eric Belt holds an EDD in Educational Technology from Boise State University. His interest in instructional design stemmed from a broader interest in the field of education, whether it was workplace training, his own experiences as an online student, and his role supporting faculty at Howard Community College. Kevin Angler holds a master's degree in instructional design from UMBC. Like Eric, he's always enjoyed the process of designing learning experiences. He worked for years in the K-12 space, where he quickly realized the value of active learning strategies and his role as a guide on the side. Becky Menendez has a master's in elementary education and also one in teaching English as a second language. Prior to coming to UMB, she did online course design for the International Baccalaureate Program and Penn State University. She came to this work through an interest in the ways technology can be used to solve instructional problems. Eric, Kevin, and Becky are my colleagues here at UMB, so you'll hear me chime in about my own experience as an instructional designer as well. In fact, I wanted to call this episode Shooting the Breeze with the IDs, but that landed like a lead balloon. Whatever it's called, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Eric, Kevin, and Becky, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Let's just jump right in. So why don't we start with definitions? Um, how do you think of this work that we do? How do you define it to others? Um, Kevin, let's start with you. Yeah, um, I think I would, I would offer a really uh, concise definition to start with. And I would say instructional design is the process of creating learning events. And by learning events, I would say, you know, those would include, you know, academic learning, skills training, behavioral changes or, or trying to change somebody's attitude or opinion about some topic. Um, but instructional design also involves a process of uh, like a systematic approach, I would say, to planning and developing learning events. So, um, and the other thing that I would add is that um, quality insurance is a, is a key part to the instructional design process. So that's kind of like in a nutshell what I would consider instructional design. That's great. Thank you. Eric, how about you? Yeah, so sort of piggybacking off of what uh, Kevin said there, you know, the, the quality assurance piece for me has always been about continuous improvement. So I see instructional design as always taking a fresh look or trying to continually improve your, your instruction or your course or some aspect of it. Becky, how about you? How do you define the work that we do? Um, I, I mean, I probably would echo would what Kevin and Eric would say in, in terms of the basic definition as being we design learning events for living, learning experiences. I would probably add that what that can actually look like varies very much from position to position. And so sometimes it's 
design work and helping faculty plan and think through how they're going to structure the course and what kind of assessments or activities might be involved. And sometimes it's project management. Sometimes it's helping develop and build. Sometimes it's helping with the technology piece. Um, and while those aren't necessarily part of the core of what instructional design is, they're often involved in the actual position and what that looks like. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think the only thing I would add from my experiences is um, emphasizing that role of a partnership with faculty. I think so often in higher ed, faculty are asked to, you know, conceive of their courses and and think about them in a vacuum. And I think one of the things that we bring is just a, uh, the role of being a sounding board and a idea partner um, for folks as they're thinking about uh, about how they're going to approach their course, whether it's online or face-to-face. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of the responsibilities that instructional designers have. Um, what do you think are some of the most important things uh, that an instructional designer provides? What do you think our biggest responsibilities are? I would say some of the most important responsibilities for an instructional designer are time management, project management, uh, but also uh, people. Right, you kind of have to be a a people person because uh, in just in my experience, there's always been um, a little bit of hesitancy or resistance to a new way of doing things or a new process or just a new learning environment. So working with faculty, you know, as an instructional designer, I think it's important to be sensitive to the um, the expertise that each individual brings to that collaboration? I, I think I would have to break it down into uh, uh, two different levels, maybe. And I would call these, you know, the micro level and the macro level. And so uh, on, the, on the micro level, I would say that the most important responsibility maybe is to guide faculty through a systematic approach for planning a course. And as part of that, uh, the instructional designer um, many times is trying to remove barriers that uh, might interfere with the the planning and the development of the course. So, and we really want faculty to focus on their strengths. So, and their strengths, of course, being, you know, imparting subject matter knowledge and, and skills to students. So we really want them to focus on that and not get all involved in the, you know, uh, the the software details and and which tools to use and which buttons to push. So, and then on the on the macro side, and by macro, I would I would classify this as like a, the campus wide uh, view of things. Um, I would say an important responsibility is to try to improve the learning experience of uh, all UMB students, and and we. I think we do this best by keeping an eye on quality standards and encouraging the development of consistently high quality learning events. And a few ways that we're doing this now in the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning, we have a, a website. Um, Eric and Sharon and Becky have been instrumental in putting this together, especially the, there, there's a, um, a component called the Online Teaching Toolkit. Uh, which has a lot of resources for faculty to use, especially new faculty, uh, faculty that are new to online learning and teaching. Um, we also have uh, individually facu- uh, individual faculty consultations and, um, and regular 
ongoing course development projects. So all these ways we're trying to improve the learning experience for uh, for our students. That, that made me think of something. I just wanted to chime in on the, the structure that we provide faculty. I think that there's a balancing act there. You know, I think that we have to be flexible in our structures that we provide faculty because the more rigid we become, that's typically where you know, problems start to arise. You know, if you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way or we expect it this way, those are all good things to help improve quality, but they can also be detrimental to the relationship, the working relationship. So it's it's like you have to be sensitive to that. You have to work with them. And sometimes, you know, everyone has different working styles. So I think that some degree of flexibility is needed in that approach too. Just thinking about what Eric just said, in terms of providing that process and that structure and even things like quality assurance standards, it's super helpful to be able to offer that framework and structure, especially if a faculty member doesn't necessarily know where to start or you're really trying to pull out what are you trying to accomplish with this course outside of maybe how it's always been taught or how maybe someone else has been taught um, when you know they were in a grad program or a professional program. Um, but I would say one of the one of our responsibilities or one of the things that we add to this process is a knowledge of some of the whys behind learning and why some of these structures or these assurance standards are in place because I think that's what offers some of the flexibility. I can take a quality matters rubric and go through a checklist and say, okay, this course meets this checklist in this way. And I've seen in some places that once you apply a rubric like that in a certain way, it can become very rigid and like, oh, the only way to make th meet this standard is to do it this way. But when you come to the table with more of an understanding of why some of these things are important and what they're accomplishing when it comes to learning, it gives you more problem solving capability, it gives you ways to do some of these things differently, like Eric was saying, and offer that flexibility of, oh, okay, so what are you trying to accomplish here? And, you know, these are some reasons why objectives are really important and why, you know, we want to include them. And here's different ways that you can present that to a learner and different, um, different ways you can set up these act activities. That's not just meeting a checklist, but that's understanding the why behind it and, and offering that flexibility. And I think one of the things that um, it, it's super important for people to know about Quality Matters is how grounded in the evidence it is. These aren't arbitrary standards at all. They're, they're all evidence-based, research-backed. Um, principles of of teaching and learning practice, and then not just teaching and learning practice, but also things like accessibility, which I think are an, is another big role that instructional designers play. Faculty, you know, aren't necessarily trained in um, ADA requirements for online courses and um, accessibility measures and things like that. Copyright, things like that, pitfalls that we know that um, it's, are easy to stumble into um, unintentionally online, but. Uh, but it's good to have another pair of eyes to to look out. It protects the faculty member, protects the institution, but most importantly, it's you know it's in the best interests of of all the learners. So, what do you wish every faculty member knew about working with an instructional designer? Have you come across common misconceptions or misperceptions of what this role is, or or something that you think just doesn't get enough airtime uh, about the potential of this relationship? that we care as much about the students. We want to improve the students' learning experience. And uh, we want to, you know, bring whatever we can to the table to help that process. And so, you know, if we come from 
a like common ground there that we're we're all in this together we're all here to help one another then i think um that makes the working relationship a lot easier to to start yeah that's a really good point eric and i'd like to piggyback on it because i was some thinking along similar lines i i think it would be great if uh faculty understood that uh to a certain extent ids are instructional designers are uh, the voice of the student in the development process, in the planning process, um, that instructional designers are not subject matter experts. They often don't know much at all about the topic that they're developing a course for. And so it's a really natural uh, fit for them to become the novice, to serve as the novice role and say, you know, um, you know, I don't really understand this point or I don't understand this uh, this goal or or this wording and ask for clarification and try to make stronger connections between, say, the stated learning goals and and the learning activities or the evaluation that students are, are going to receive. Um, so and I think uh, to Eric's point that I think this really does align with the intentions of the of the faculty. Uh, generally. Um, I mean, and let me just say all the faculty that I've worked with at UMB are just fantastic. They're, they're amazing uh, partners and they're, they're just great human beings and great to work with. So uh, really enjoy that. But um, I also believe that uh, their intentions in focusing on student success align perfectly what, with what we're trying to do as well. Even though it seems like the partnership that we have is focused on the faculty. Really, we're, we're almost always focused on the student and student outcomes. I was just thinking about some of the, the common misconceptions that I, I feel like I've come across. And I think one of the common misconceptions is that we are like a help desk or tech support. Uh, and while that, depending on the role, that is often something that we can offer, um, I have, you know, I've, I've been in, in places or situations where that was maybe the role of an instructional designer, or initially it was a role of people in that department. And then, you know, faculty assume that that's the extent of what we have to offer. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think um, one of the things that I, I feel like is a misconception is that um, instructional designers only work on online courses. Um, I think that the the kind of skills and um, insights that we bring into that student experience and the alignment between the objectives and the activities work just as well in a face-to-face. -face. Um, the nature of our role here in particular uh, tends to be focused on online courses, but I think that the conversations we have um, you know, would be relevant. And in fact, I've had faculty I've worked with tell me like, oh, I'm going to try the activity in my face-to-face -face course, or I'm going to restructure my face-to-face -face course to to incorporate some of these ideas. And there's definitely some transferability with that. It made me think that, I've, I think I've said it before uh, to some faculty, but if you designed your face-to-face -face courses as online courses first, it, it, you'd be amazed at some of the, the things you find and things you could do differently and ideas that you have and the, the technology you can incorporate. And, you know, to Becky's point about the instructional design versus instructional technologist point is, you know, that's, it's an interesting thing. I think we always have to have like a three minute elevator pitch about what we, what it is we do. Um, because, you know, there is so much research and, you know, study and theory about learning 
right? And learning in different environments that's out there. And I think that what we bring to that table is sort of helping transition or, you know, uh, bridge that potential gap that there is theory and, and research and study and logic and stuff behind what we're, we're the advice we're giving or the ideas that we're suggesting or things like that. Absolutely. And also that made me think of another misconception is that this job is all about the technology um, and that that is the main driver of the work that we do. And because we all work together, I think you guys know that on our team, I'm probably the most uh, skeptical <laughs> in the technology realm. Like it, the technology has to be really good and really stable and meet all the needs before I, I get on board. I'm not like one of the bells and whistles kind of um you know, technology advocates. And I find it as creative and as exciting to work with faculty on the design of an assignment. Like even if it's just what the topic of a discussion is or the topic of a written assignment or a group assignment, something like that is to me can be as innovative as any new uh, new communication technology or, or new interactive technology. That said, the the capabilities that some of these technologies afford faculty in these classes um, can can be can be really interesting. Um, is there a particular technology that uh, you guys have come across lately that uh, excites you um, for its potential impact in teaching and learning? I mean, there's there's definitely interesting tools out there. I mean, some of the ones we've been using a lot lately are VoiceThread, um, Hypothesis, which is kind of like this collaborative annotation tools. I tend to be drawn to tools that can really support and facilitate collaboration uh, in a different way or more of an interactive style of feedback. So um, tools that allow you to embed comments like on a video timeline. Um, but but for me, I, I don't get excited about tools so much until I see a problem that the tool can help meet. So I get excited about problem solving and then I happen to maybe know tools that can help solve those problems. So the problem solving aspect to me is what's exciting. And then the tools just happen to be what helped me solve those problems sometimes. You know, an, an observation that I can make here based on uh, on your recent comments from really from everybody. Um, I, this is my this is my eighth year now. And um, and I've really seen uh, a, a real evolution in um, the I think the uh, perception and understanding of of uh, online learning in particular, but, um, and also um, the recognition of the role of the ID in the, in the course development process. When I started eight years ago, I don't think uh, any of the faculty that, that I, that I was working with early on knew what I was, how I could help them or what I was supposed to be doing. And so there was a certain uh, amount of education, I guess, that would go on at the beginning of the, of the partnership to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is what I do. This is this is how I can help you. These are some of the tools that are out there. Um, but I've noticed a, a real change, uh, especially over the last year, and in particular since the lockdown. You know, one of the few benefits of COVID is that uh, so many people have gotten hands-on experience with uh, remote communication and distance learning and distance teaching in particular. Um, have gotten real familiar with uh, some of the tools that are out there. And so that level of like technology education isn't, isn't as important as it, as it used to be. Now they're starting from a, a uh, the faculty are starting from a completely different level now. And 
And so now we can, I feel like as instructional designers, we can focus more on, you know, the design elements and uh, teaching strategies and things like that. Um, whereas the technology is kind of just kind of like a given in there. In some cases, they're even um, they're even asking me, you know, do you know about this tool? And no, I'll have to investigate it and see how uh, how we can use it and that sort of thing. So, so it's exciting to to know that that uh, that is happening. It's an interesting point. It made me think of the diffusion of innovations model where you have like the early adopters and the early majority, late majority, the laggards. And that's kind of, you know, you could arguably say that Zoom or WebEx or things like that, you know, we're probably in the late majority now at this point where I think, you know, there's probably not a lot of laggards left with being able to use Zoom for work or teaching or things like that. So, but still, even with that, you know, there's so much to be explored and, and studied still. You know, there's a lot of affordances in all of these technologies that we don't really know if they have an influence or an impact on uh, learning outcomes per se, but maybe they have effective uh, outcomes. You know, maybe it's a relationship building or community building or, you know, so for me, the technology piece is not, you know, I think it's natural for everyone to get excited about a technology to solve some sort of educational problem, but none of these tools will like are a you know panacea, right? They're not going to solve things, you know. And there's a lot of different tools that do a lot of the same things. So it really comes down to really getting at you know that learning experience, that instructional design piece. You know, what are you trying to do with your students, and can this technology help? you know, assist, right? But it's not going to do it for you. And we as the designers aren't going to do it for you. But so to me, the technology has always been an intermediary. And it's it's really that the communication and the teaching has to come through that media uh, for it to be effective or effective. Exactly. And the instructor's voice and presence will never be replaced by a technology. Like that sense of community, that sense of um, engagement with the faculty member, the feedback they provide, the connection. Um, there's There are technologies that facilitate that, but nothing can ever replace it. So um, that's, that's just such an important uh, aspect of this work is making sure that the instructor can always shine through all of the um, the the barriers that are there the the technology barriers the the instructions all those kinds of things really need to disappear so that the students can just focus on the learning and the feedback that they're getting yeah that's what i get excited about you know with online courses in particular that that i think there's a tendency to think that they're uh less human right? Because in some ways you could just have an asynchronous discussion board and put up an automated quiz or things like that. So where's where's my teacher, right? It's all about that teacher presence and that engagement and that communication. So, you know, I think tools, certain tools can help create efficiencies for faculty to display or present their instructor presence to students. Now, to me, that's the benefit of it, but it's not that, you know, the technology itself is something that's going to solve the problem. Yeah. I keep thinking about the this quote by Richard Clark in one of its articles way back when there was this debate over educational media and whether it influenced student learning outcomes or not. And a quote that always sticks out to me whenever I kind of give a presentation on educational technology is this comparison he makes to like a delivery truck. And his argument was that, you know, educational media, and, and I think this applies to educational technology as well, 
doesn't impact student achievement any more than in his comparison than a delivery truck impact that delivers groceries impacts nutrition. And his argument was that it's the instructional method that makes the difference, and the tools just help carry or deliver that uh, maybe more quickly, maybe more cost with more cost efficiency. Um, but that's something I always like to keep in mind. It's like the instructional method or the instructor presence. Those things are what make the impact and the tools just kind of the, the delivery method. And there's a follow-up to Clark by Cosma, right? And, you know, they had like an academic debate. And, you know, Cosma's point was that it was uh, instructional media can influence learning. We just don't know to the extent, right? So it's there's a little push and pull there between the technology and what's happening. But um, yeah, that's it's a, a great fun little pick. instructional design wars uh, yes. in that series of articles. <laughs> Our listeners are really getting the behind the curtain <laughs> wizard play going on there. That's let's great. take some more dives into deep dives into theory. <laughs> but but what I love is that is that it exists, right? And that and that we can share that there just as in any discipline, like there's debates and discussions and uh, points of view and, you know, all these things like this, this isn't cookie cutter and we're, we're all figuring it out as we go along too. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the projects that, uh, that you guys are working on. Well, what are, what are some interesting experiences that you've gotten to have uh, as an instructional designer? Um, and how do you think uh, having an ID on that project added value to it? I could start. Uh, I'm working with Dr. Michelle Pierce. She's a graduate school professor and a clinical psychologist. And um, a few years ago, she won a small grant to develop a, what, what came to be a MOOC, a massively online, open online course uh, that, that we put on the edX platform. And the purpose, the, the name of the course was Spiritual Competency Training in Mental Health. And the primary goal of that course was to, to try to change attitudes of mental health therapists for incorpor incorporating spirituality into their therapeutic practices. And uh, it, it was such an a unusual goal, something that's, you know, because usually we're teaching uh, we're involved in courses that are teaching clinical skills or something more concrete than that. So I thought it was uh, uh, quite interesting to see uh, if this could be done, particularly on a MOOC platform, which is uh, available globally to any student that wants to register for it. Um, and uh, Dr. Pierce did some evaluation. She found out there there were significant changes in the attitudes of of the therapists and the uh, the other learners that were taking the course. So, um, as a result, she was awarded a much larger grant. And so, we've expanded it to include uh, twenty instructors across the country, um, and they're using the online materials from that course in their in person graduate level uh, psychology courses. So it's kind of morphed into a, a hybrid sort of training situation. Um, so in, in terms of my contribution, I would say that, um, well, Dr. Pierce is an experienced online instructor and she's worked with Blackboard for many years, um, but she hasn't uh, designed a course or at the time she didn't design a course on the edX platform before. So it was it was my job to help guide her through the like the different features of the edX platform and how they might affect course design. 
Um, and, and then the other thing um, that um, I think my, my value added was, was navigating the, um, the edX uh, course implementation process through the uh, University of Maryland system admin office down at uh, in College Park. So there's a certain level of administrative uh, uh, activities that have to go on in order to launch a course through edX. So uh, um, I think uh, I was hopefully uh, instrumental in doing that. Um, but um, I just find that that uh, this course is so exciting because we're having a much broader impact on so many students. And I feel like we're, you know, I, I say we, but really it's it's Dr. Pierce and her group that are um, making a, a real impact in the mental health field. Yeah, that's so exciting. And I, I think what um, could also tie back to the misconceptions about this field is that uh, we only work on courses that are um, you know, associated with University of Maryland Baltimore credit. I think a lot of the projects that we have worked on, all of us, uh, are in support of research dissemination. So they are educational events, learning events that are tied to a faculty member's research, and they may not be directly pointed at uh, UMB students, but they might be pointed out more, more uh, globally or more broadly. So that's a great example. Thank you. Becky, how about you? Um, the project that I had in mind was also a MOOC. It was uh, the first MOOC I, I worked on, but it was, a uh, um, a MOOC, uh, designed for, to, to help practitioners, uh, healthcare practitioners work with, um, victims of intimate part partner violence. And it pulled in stories from, from, um, IP, IPV survivors and practitioners um, and I also, it was interesting to me also because it was a cross-team collaboration. And so we had faculty members at two different institutions, the University of Michigan and here at University of Maryland, Baltimore, collaborating and splitting the work on, on different modules and working in edX, which was a new platform for me at the time, and trying to guide the process with the faculty, um, with the modules we were assigned to, and coordinate with the work that was being done in Michigan and trying to make it all come together, trying to um, organize the process so it was less overwhelming. Um, and I don't know, it was really fun watching it come from ideas to more of a plan to actually materializing into this course that's now out in the real world, um, helping people and making, a, making an impact. So that was really exciting. Yeah. What I love about both of your examples is that um, even though the topics of those courses may not have been fields that you know you're academically trained in, the it's very purposeful the kind of work, and and you can you can feel that the importance of the work that you're doing, um, and and I think it dispels the myth that that this process is cookie cutter and that. You know, we're kind of a factory assembly line of online courses. I, I hope everyone can hear that they're like we really get passionate about the courses that we're working on. And um, you know, for me, I can tell that that a project is is has reached another level when I get so excited about whatever I'm working on that I want to take that course, even though I've been working on it for months and months. And we really do get emotionally invested um, because we have these great relationships with the faculty member and because we care about the the content that's that's going out there. And so I just I think those are great examples of that. Eric, how about you? What's a project that that you found interesting lately? Yeah, 
Oh, these are all good examples. Uh, you know, edX is so interesting. I wonder if uh, we're, we've designed so many courses in Blackboard that, you know, edX is like the new thing that we're working with. But um, no, I, I, there's a couple of things that came to mind. So one was uh, the master's in medical cannabis program out of the School of Pharmacy. Uh, I've been working with the faculty over there on that program, and that's been really exciting uh, because it's a new I don't know if it's like the first degree in the country that's being offered uh, about that subject. So, yeah, so it's very exciting. Um, but the other thing was, and this is sort of uh, hasn't happened yet, but I'm, I'm going to make a plug for it, right? But having an instructional designer on a study, right? So if you're going to do uh, research in your classroom or you're interested in doing the um, sort of the scholarship of teaching and learning and you want to maybe include a technology like VoiceThread or Flipgrid or any of these things, and you want to design an intervention and do a study and publish on it, I think an instructional designer would be a wonderful addition to that project. So, Yeah. Yeah. So not just uh, designing courses that are part of a research pro- project, but also partnering with faculty on educational research um, and, and really contributing to so that we can have more informed discussions about, you know, does this technology you know, make a difference uh, with student learning. Yeah, that's a great example. The cannabis example is also interesting too. I I uh, was involved with that as well because of how many students are in these courses. I mean, that was a real design um, difference from courses that we had worked on. They they just uh, their applications just went through the roof when that program went live, and suddenly you're instead of designing a course for 25 people, you're designing a course for hundreds, and making sure that the same level of engagement and satisfaction and and learning happens for that many. It's that was a kind of a fun a fun problem to solve, a fun challenge. I guess the example I would bring up. Um, would be uh, being the instructional designer for the curriculum of health professions education. I really like it when we're assigned to, you know, when we work with a lot of new programs and new curriculum and when we're assigned to a program from the beginning so that we can see not just at in a course level, but across all of the courses, sort of how they, how the courses build on each other, how the students experience grows and changes and evolves as they start from their first semester up through their capstone or their their research projects. And uh, I really love being able to be, have that bird's eye view um, and then also get down into the weeds of an individual course. So I think that would be the example uh, that I'm working on right now that I find interesting because we're just getting through the development of the, of the last year. So we're kind of reaching the finish line and and thinking about how to redesign them now, which is also part of that continuous improvement. Well, this has been such a fun discussion. Thank you all so much. Um, One question we like to ask all our guests on this podcast is whether there's anything that they're seeing that they think could move the needle in the world of teaching and learning. Do you guys see anything on the horizon that's exciting you in this space? I think one thing I'm curious about, and I I think you've already talked about this um, in a previous podcast, is working with different different ways of grading or assessing students that um, uh, kind of get away from so the example I have is is implementing um, a labored-based grading system uh, with Isabel May uh, been working in her writing courses with that and it kind of it's interesting to me because it can feel like it 
bumps up against some of those standards or quality standards where you need to have these objectives and you need to have the set rubric and you need to have, you know, these these grade range for points so students know how they did. And it takes a very different approach that I think is still very valuable and, and valid and um, addresses a lot of inequities. Um, I'm curious to see how practices like that can fit in with quality standards that we already have in place and with the idea of transparency and assessment and evaluation and alignment and ways to balance these innovative ways of kind of going against traditional ways we, we assess and we grade and we assign value to work. That's great. Yeah. That's that another is, half that to is, that. But. Yeah. Eric, how about you? Are there any, uh, any things in teaching in the teaching and learning space now that you are finding interesting you think could move the needle? Yeah. You know, I think that there's always, there's always trends, right? There's always trends in education. We always try to keep out on like where things are going, you know, micro-credentialing, ungrading. There's a lot of like, uh, you know, hot bite items, you know, Zoom fatigue, right? You'll hear those sorts of things. So, you know, I think that's what ultimately moving the needle in today's day and age, given the pandemic and things that have happened, are the faculty, right? And the and the staff that are supporting it. Because I think we are on the precipice of a greater change. I see this as this idea of flexibility, and maybe it's not necessarily hybrid or blended or bisynchronous or where this is headed, right? But the nature of work and learning is starting to shift a little bit with greater flexibility. So to me, the educators and the institutions that are staying on top of that are moving the needle, right? And if you are waiting for something to happen or trying to go back to some old way of doing something, that's not gonna move the needle. So it's about thinking forward and I think that the, the faculty and, and staff and everyone at UMB is really trying to do that. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, uh, to that view, uh, Eric, in a more granular way. And, and I, I've been on this soapbox about uh, high flex learning recently. So I got really excited about high flex learning. And if our listeners aren't familiar with high flex learning, that's, the, um, that's a, an approach to learning where uh, the students have um, complete control of, over how they want to engage with the course. They can be in person or they can be online on any, any given day. So it's completely up to them about how they want to do that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of what Eric was saying, I think that this may be the trend. It, it provides so many um, robust options uh, for uh institutions and for students um, and for faculty for that for that for that matter um, the the issue of course is that it takes a lot of preparation to essentially what you're doing is developing uh, two different um, two different courses or two different domains for that course to uh, to engage learners so uh, there is a bit of work behind it but um, I, you know given the potential disruptions uh, that uh, that um, are out there, in, you know, at any given time for any given location, high flex learning would kind of, you know, really uh, be a great insurance policy. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, the other thing, the other interesting thing, kind of unrelated to that, that I heard um, yesterday in a, 
in a webinar is, uh, is the term snackable training. And I thought that, that was really intriguing to me, snackable training, uh, which is uh, the meaning of that is, uh, you know, really short bursts of learning that kind of fit, um, especially, you know, busy students or just busy learners in general, uh, the schedule that they have. So it could be, you know, information that's pushed out or very short video clips, uh, two minute video clips about a given topic or something like that. But um, I think in general, the, t the trend is uh, towards this is more an industry view, but I think it's going to seep into academics where um, there are um, you, you're not going to have long engagements with students that are an hour and a half long or two hours long, especially if it's online. It's going to get smaller and smaller and shorter and shorter, but maybe dispersed over time. Well, I'm down with any innovation that involves snacks, so count me in for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. This is th what I love about this too is that there, there's not a sing there's not like a technology focused uh, thing that we're excited about. These are really um, deeper than that, kind of really questioning the the structures of education and and thinking about that. I I would add my my area of interest right now. What I think can move the needle are teaching methodologies that. Um, you know, we know lots of methods that help students in the cognitive domain that help them define terms and apply theories and all those things. But but something that really interests me is how we um, how we influence students affective uh, domain. So how students learn compassion when they're getting ready to go into a health or human service field, how they how they really learn those people skills. Um, and what kinds of what kinds of learning systems or learning design influences that? Because it's it's a different kind of space and a different kind of outcome. So there, we could just talk about this all day. And uh, there's just so much uh, interesting things out there. And I can't thank you all enough for your time. This has been a great discussion. And I just feel so lucky that I get to have conversations like this with you on a random Tuesday or during a podcast interview. So thank you for the work that you do here. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash FCTL to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.